0: So we welcome Pam Davis. Uh, Pam is a former model. She is the wife of Steve Davis, a former baseball pitcher. Um, She attended biblical studies at Liberty University and is is an author, speaker, and inventor of Girls in Grace dolls. Pam has a passion to teach about God's inexhaustible and unmerited grace. She and her husband live in Fort Worth, Texas, and we welcome you tonight, Pam. Thanks for coming. I am so pleased to be here. And Friday night, it's 7 o'clock. Wow, I'm impressed. This this shows commitment. Um, So I'm just thrilled to be here. And one of the reasons why I'm thrilled to be here because I'm going to be teaching about my very favorite passage in all of scripture. And the reason why it's my very favorite passage in all of scripture, it's because Jesus is speaking to people That are the most like us today Um, it's just um, ironic so let me describe these people to you before we get into the text the people that Jesus is speaking to in this passage um, first of all he says to the church so they're Christians so these people have put their faith in Jesus Christ they believe he's God's Messiah and they have um, given their life to him for their salvation so they're the church these are people that live in a place that the name of their city is Rights of the People. Okay, which is really interesting because this letter is written that we're going to be talking about in 89 A.D. Um, and it's under the Roman rule. So Rome ruled this area until the late 400s, and so it's under Roman rule. And yet, this the people in this city um, name their city Rights of the People. So they have a a feeling of independence from Rome and that they have their own individual rights. This was a place that was built in honor of a woman. Now it's very normal in the ancient world to have a statue that when you got to a city that it told the people who the city was built in honor of. If you went to Athens, there would be a statue of Athena. If you went to Ephesus, you would see the temple of Diana. If you went to Rome, you'd see a statue of Caesar. So in this city, it was built in honor of a woman. So if you got there, you had, you'd be greeted with a statue of a woman declaring rights of the people. Okay? Now, this place um, had an incredible economy. It was more affluent than any other city in Asia, so much so that they gave just uh, so much money in gold in taxes to Rome. I had the notes. I was looking at it. It was either 500 pounds or five tons, some crazy amount, exorbitant, of gold and taxes, so much so that Rome had allowed this city to have its own gold coinage because their economy was so strong they could have their own gold coins. Um, This was a place that had an incredible um, entertainment and um, sports arenas. There were three theaters in this city. Um, At least one of them was able to house 30,000 people, which would be the size of like a college football stadium okay and so and they had an elaborate circus that they were known for and they had games and sports and all sorts of entertainment in these theaters the people in this place were incredibly dressed they were finely dressed why were they so finely dressed there was a unique black sheep that grazed in their foothills that allowed their wool to be of different fabrics I mean different textures different colors and they had mastered the dyeing process So they had uh, the ability to make it all different colors. So if you walked around, you would see the citizens finely dressed, Uh, and their home decor, of course, would would follow that same way. They had a lot of style because of those um, attributes. And then finally, this was a place um, that boasted an advanced medical community. They actually had a medical school there, and they had developed a cure for a malady that had plagued the ancient world, and that was blindness. For at least 6,000 years, we know recorded history, blindness was a a huge problem in the ancient world. You've seen pictures in Egypt where they do the black paint, whether it's men or women around their eyes. Well, that was tried to, to prevent blindness. That's why they did it. It wasn't cosmetic. So the ancient people had really suffered with blindness, and now these people had come up with a cure for it and had a medical school there. So people from all over the world, and specifically Asia, came to this city. So now, I want you to use your imagination, and I want you to imagine you. Now, can you imagine you being a Christian? I hope most of you can go, yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, I want you to imagine that you live in a place where the people talk about, they discuss, they write about their rights. Is it civil rights? Is it the right to bear arms? Is it the right of speech? But it's their rights, so much so that that's what they are very concerned about. Imagine you live in a place where foreigners come to visit, and when they come to visit, they're greeted by a statue of a woman, declaring rights, okay? Imagine that you live in a place where you look around and everyone is more fluent and the standard of living is higher than most places in the world. And also the citizens, oh my goodness, they're finely dressed. They have elaborate wardrobes. Their houses are well decorated. And if you get ill in such a place, guess what? You've got the best medical care that have got breakthrough um, procedures to fix the maladies. Can you imagine such a place? I hope so, because it doesn't take us much, because I think that Laodicea is just a picture of the United States. The church in the United States is unbelievably, ironically, similar to the church in Laodicea. So Jesus writes to these people, and that's why this is my favorite passage to teach because it is the most relevant. We can identify with this the most because we're the most like these people. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, you can open to Revelation, last book in the Bible, chapter 3, and we're going, it's seven verses. We're going to start in verse 14. I'll give you a second to do that, and here's my little, uh, disclaimer on this. I've written books about this. I've taught this in a nine-week video series. I'm passionate about this. And so I could spend literally eight hours doing it. So my challenge is not what to say, it's what not to say. So um, we will go through a lot of these points. And we're going to skip over not every detail in the letter that I would prefer to to share with you just for time's sake. But I want to share with you the stuff that is absolutely imperative in why you came why I believe the Lord has us on this Friday night, at this time in history, um, connecting, okay? So to start off this letter, in verse 14, it says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So right off the bat, Jesus wants the people to know that the words that are are being told to them are from him. They're not from Paul. Remember, there are a lot of letters circulating from a lot of churches. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Thessalonica, Corinth, all these different churches. And Jesus says, I want you to know this is from me. This is from the amen, so be it. This is the ruler of God's creation. This is a faithful and true witness. I'm the eyewitness of everything I'm telling you. This is Jesus' words. Now, Bible publishers, um, they used to do it always. Now, some of the newer publishers are not doing it for cost, but the uh, the words to let you know that were Jesus' were in red. Red ink Bibles. Hopefully a lot of you still have that and remember that. And so the words in this letter are in red, just like the words in the Gospel, because the publishers want you to know that John received this firsthand from Jesus. This wasn't hearsay. This wasn't secondhand. J- John literally heard and saw Jesus speak these words, and he quoted him and wrote this and then gave it to a messenger um, to take to the church in Laodicea. So I want you to understand it's firsthand. So it's interesting because this letter, like I said, is written in 89 AD, and of course Jesus ascended in 33 AD. So John gives us an eyewitness account of the risen, glorified Jesus, and we're going to get to this more in, in a little bit. So, But at this very part, the letter in these words are from Jesus, and so it has a weight of a authority that is depictive of God speaking to you and he's speaking to you in a situation that was very similar that we live in today so what's he say okay he says um, verse 15 I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot Um, I wish you were either one or the other but so because you are lukewarm neither hot nor cold I'm about to spit you out of my mouth wow Okay, so three things I want you to notice about this first part of the letter that Jesus speaks to the Christians in the Church of the United States, I mean the Church of Laodicea. Okay, first, <laughs> first thing he says is, I know your deeds. Okay, so that means I perceive, I'm aware, I'm acquainted with, I intimately know what you're doing. I know what you're doing today. I know what you did yesterday. I know what you said. I know what you didn't say. I know where you're at in your life today. He knows exactly where each one of us are and what we're doing with our life. I know your deeds. That's the first thing. So that's hidden, he knows. And it's present tense, because remember, uh, even though we're living in 2018, and those people are living in 89 AD, he ascended in 33 AD. So it's not like he was walking around the streets of Laodicea. So he knows them intimately, because he's in these people, just like he's in us. He makes our home here. So he's saying, I'm intimately acquainted. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, he has a reaction to our lives. He has a reaction to our deeds. He has a reaction to the deeds we don't do. He has a reaction to our words. He has, And so what is his reaction? It could be, wow, I know what you're doing, and I am delighted by you. I sing over you. I'm rejoicing. I'm talking to the angels about you. I, I'm just so happy. His response could be, I'm so appreciative of you i'm so appreciative of your sacrifice i'm so appreciative of your faith and difficulty your endurance and perseverance i so appreciate he could he could have that reaction um he could he could have the reaction of i can't wait to embrace you and see you face to face i see you now but i want you to see me and so he could have all these reactions but the reaction that he has to these christians is i want to barf like i want to throw up OK, that's what it says. Literally, I want, to, I want to spit you out of my mouth. That's a very nice way of saying it. But that's the truth of, of what he's saying. You, you make me nauseous when I look at you. When you're like, wow, OK, how, why is that? Well, let me give you some context to Laodicea. As advanced as Laodicea was, as rich it was, as the theaters and how finely dressed and an amazing city it was, it had one major problem. And the major problem was they built the city too far from the water source. Okay, So there were streams, there were uh, springs, there were rivers, but they were too far from the city and the people. And, and the city was so big. And so how they compensated for that is they built a series of canals, and they dug a series of ditches to try to get the fresh spring water to the people. But because the distance was so far, it didn't work. And so by the time the water got there, it was not cool and reviving it was lukewarm and it made it sick. Well, uh, Rome burned in uh, 64 AD from a fire and so under Nero. And so now it's 89, so it's about 20, 25 years later. And so there was an ordinance that none of the big cities in Rome could have fires within the city for fear that it would burn. And so they had all the fires outside the city away from the people. And so if you wanted hot water or hot thing, you would have to go to this water source. You'd have to go over there by a fire to heat it up. Then you'd have to take it all the way over to the people. And so by the time you got there, it was lukewarm. So that's the connotation. Either it could have been cool or it could have been hot, but it was neither one. It was lukewarm. And why was that? It was because the people lived too far from the water source. They lived too far from the water source, their daily lives. How they lived their life was too far what is the application of this okay do you remember when jesus spoke to the woman at the well in samaria he says to her i have a water and you will never be thirsty again it's living water it will well up into you for eternal life it is a spring is what he tells this woman at the well and then he tells the disciples it's better that i go because if i go i will send a counselor another one to be with you forever The Holy Spirit that will revive you, will refresh you. And when he talked to Nicodemus, he says, how can a man be born again? He He is born again by water and by spirit. And remember at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, it came in tongues of fire and heated up. And so what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit that I gave you is the life source and it is within you. You're to draw upon it just like you're to draw upon water. And that is going to continue to refresh you and continue to revive you. But if you build your life, Christian, too far from the water source, then guess what? You are nauseating because the life of the Holy Spirit in you is now lukewarm. You have made a distance between you and the Holy Spirit. You're so busy in your activities over here the distance is what's causing it not to be hot and not to be cold, okay? It's interesting that Paul says in Romans, it's Romans 5.20, he makes this very important statement. He says, everything God made, his invisible qualities in divine nature can be clearly seen by what he made, okay? So when God made the human body and he made it 70, 80% water, he, and he made us have to live on water, we can't go too many days without water, He was giving us a picture of what our lives should be like in relationship to the Holy Spirit. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit, at least 70 to 80 percent. We should draw upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, That should be what our life source is. We shouldn't go too far without drawing on that. If we do, then we become lukewarm, and the deeds that we have are nauseating. Okay. So that's that picture. So why were these people like that? Why were they lukewarm? It's because of what they said in verse 17. It says, you say I'm rich and acquired wealth and do not need a thing. That's what Jesus said. These Christians, because they had their theater, they had their clothes, they had all their economy, they were busy about their rights, they say you're rich, you're acquired, and don't need a thing. But Jesus says that's not the truth. Let me tell you, I know who you are and you're five things. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, Since we are Christians living in an environment so similar to that, we have to ask ourselves, would he say the same thing about us today? So I'm going to walk you through the description of those five words. And as I do that, I want you to do a little self-assessment. It's important. So wretched, what does wretched mean? Wretched means enduring troubles. You have problem after problem, trouble after trouble. The picture is a hurdler. So you're going down the road of life, and there's hurdles in front of you, barriers, obstacles, and instead of being able to vault over it, you constantly get knocked down. You say things like, I just can't get ahead. You know, it doesn't matter what I do, it's like I can't get ahead. And then eventually say, I don't know, I'm just stuck. I'm just stuck. Those are attributes of a wretched life. Now Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, you will have problems, but be of good cheer, I have overcome. I have overcome the world. I can vault over these barriers. Well, these Christians weren't able to. They were constantly getting knocked down. So he says, You're wretched. The second thing he says is they're pitiful. What does pitiful mean? Pitiful means I lack the power to perform. That's what it means. It means I know what I want to do. It's I want to go forward. I want to get that education. I want to get that. Um, advancement in my job I, w- I want to lose weight I want to exercise I want to be a better spouse I want to quit drinking I want to quit smoking I want to be a better parent you know, whatever it is you know you know what you want to do but you lack the power to perform it the idea is you go two steps forward one step back two steps forward three steps back uh, you're just not making headway he says you are pitiful Another picture that's a good example of this is if you go into a gym and you see a really big bodybuilder. He's all ripped. He's got his triceps, his biceps, and he's walking around the gym. Now, you're new to the gym. You're not kind of in the shape he is. And so you see a barbell over there. And don't have any weights on it, just that barbell. And you say, excuse me, can 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 you help me and hand me that? Yeah, I got this. And so he comes over with his big muscles and he leans over and he can't even pick it up. He has the appearance of strength but he has no power to perform, okay? That is what the church is like in the United States and in Laodicea. They have the bumper stickers on the car. They wear the bracelet. Their are radios attuned to the Christian radio station. They listen to church podcasts, everything. They have the appearance of strength, but they lack the power to perform. And that's what Jesus says is pitiful. The third thing he says is that they are poor. Now, you know these Christians in Laodicea, you know, hold on, baby. We are not poor. Do you see how much money we've given in taxes? So you know that's what they're thinking in their heart. But what does it mean to be poor? What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. You lack the resources to be and do good. You lack the resources to be and and do good. Here's where i got to go sidebar for a minute and give you a definition. The definition of good is this. It means to function according to design. That's what good means. When God made everything in Genesis, and he looked at it, and he says, it was very good. He was not making a moral statement. Sin had not entered into the equation. This was not a moral assessment. He was saying that everything functioned according to design. Everything worked interdependently, perfectly. It was good. Okay, that's what it means. So Paul, in Ephesians, when he's talking uh, to the church in Ephesus, he says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that I've prearranged and made ready for you, says Jesus. That's what it is. And that word workmanship is actually masterpiece. So Paul says that you are God's masterpiece, recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prearranged and made ready for you. So the idea is you have a unique good design that that God has made. It's a it's not like anybody else. It's your own unique blueprint and it is good. It's going to function according to his design. He knows the blueprint and you're to function that way. And that function is going to create good works that he has prearranged and made ready. And those good works are necessary because we live interdependently on each other. So when everybody's doing it, it's perfect. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Everybody living their function and their gifts and what their service is benefits everybody. And so he tells these Christians, guess what? You're poor. You don't have the resources to be and do good. Um, Because why? They are rich, acquired wealth, and doing their own thing. They have their own self-serving agenda. The fourth thing that he says is that you're blind. Now, remember, these Christians are going to balk at this because they have an ISAV and they have a medical school, and they have found the cure for the 6,000-year-old malady of blindness. So I'm sure they thought, no, not us. But they were blind. And what does that mean? The picture is this, if your car has two ways of seeing. So if you go out at night in your car, you can turn on your headlights and you can see what? 200, 300 feet ahead of you. You can do your brights, do a little bit further. That's one way that you can see. Another way that you can see is your car may have a GPS system. Now your GPS system will not only see 200, 300 feet, 200, 300 miles, 2,000, 3,000 miles. I can put in my GPS system Scotland. And it will tell me how to get from my front door in Fort Worth all the way to Scotland. a matter of fact, the best route to get there, the, the shortest distance to get there, the roads that are available to get there. How does that work? It's because your GPS system receives a signal from a satellite in heaven. Okay, so what is the application? Jesus says this, you are blind because you're using the eyes of your head that only affords you the ability to see a very short distance around you. But there is another system, there is a guidance system in the Holy Spirit that will enable you to see my ultimate will, my universal will, and my unique will for your life. Because that Holy Spirit is getting a signal from heaven that is going to tell you exactly where I want you to go, what your gifts and callings are, and the shortest and the best way and the road available to get there if you listen to it and use that as a navigation system, that these people weren't doing that, and so therefore he says they're blind. And then finally he says that they were naked. And again, these people are like, you've got to be kidding me. Have you seen my finely dyed wool? I mean, I'm not naked. I'm designer. He says they're naked. So what does he mean by clothes? You can put your hand if you're following me at here and go all the way to Revelation 19, or you can just listen to me read it. Revelation 19, it's just a short little piece, Uh, it's in verse 6 of 19, and I'm going to pick up right where it says, hallelujah, because I want you to see it right in the scripture. It says, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen and bright and clean was given her. Her to wear fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints so it defines it right there what are the clothes that the bride wears the clothes that the bride wears are the righteous acts of the saints your wedding garments and we are all collectively the bride whether you're male or female we are the responders to the initiating christ we are the beloved he is the lover Uh, we are the one, the bride that he's coming back for. Our wedding garment is literally the righteous acts that we do. That's why they're so important. That's why Jesus was so nauseated at the church. He looked at him. He said, you're completely naked. So often we think, when was the Lord coming back? We know he's going to come like a thief in the night. And he says, I'm coming back when the bride makes herself ready. It's just a picture. Just like we've been to many of weddings, the groom's standing right here waiting for the bride to come down. She's not going to come down until she is dressed. He's over there waiting. And he's like, it's been a long time. Let's get dressed now. And what is your dress? It's a righteous acts of the saints. And so tonight, it's very important. You're not here by chance. The people in this room is about half the number that was in the upper room at Pentecost. And it was 120 people that changed the world. And we don't have a record of all 120 people. So we have more than enough people here to change the world. We don't need the masses. We need people that are available to the Holy Spirit. So if you are here, you have to ask yourself, is my life right now experiencing a wretched condition? Am I enduring problems? After, am I not getting ahead? Am I constantly feeling stuck? Is my life pitiful? Do I know what to do and I just lack the power to perform it? Am I poor? Do I not have the resources to do the good works that he has prearranged and made ready for me? Am I, am I blind? Do I not use the Holy Spirit to see exactly why I'm on planet Earth and the good works that he's already got prearranged, made ready for me? Do I not see them? And then finally, am I naked? Am I lacking the righteous acts that he would have me so that's why I'm still alive? Has he kept me alive for this day to know something needs to change because I have righteous acts yet to do? Because if you didn't have to be here, he wouldn't keep you here. So you need to ask yourself that because here's the deal. Everyone needs grace all the time. We all need it. But only those that are aware of their need will ever reach in faith to receive it. So tonight is just to get you aware of your need to begin with. So consider just for a second where you're at in this equation because the next words of this letter could be the most impacting words in your life because he's written to Christians that live in the exact same situation that we live in today. So let's go to his words. What's the next thing he says? and uh, 3. So he says, uh, now that you are wretched, pitiful, and poor, blind, and naked, I'm going to counsel you. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. So the good news is Jesus absolutely wants these Christians to see. He wants them to see without doubt why they're here and what are the good works that he has prearranged for them. He wants them to be able to see it. He wants them to have the clothes. He wants them to be the bride. He can't wait to join you in the most intimate oneness relationship for eternity where he calls you beloved forever and you rule and reign with him. He can't wait for that. And he wants you to be rich, not not just rich, but enriched. Enriched is different. It means a king. Enriched is not only do I have the necessary resources, the necessary resources are flowing through me. So it's not from a position of serving in poverty, it's a a position of serving in rich. It's the way a king serves. So he wants that. So how do we, so what does he tell us to do? He counsels us to do something, and this is where I really want us to focus in and understand this. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold. Okay, let's just break that up. Okay, buy is the first word we need to look at. I counsel you to buy. Why does he say buy and not take? what is the difference between buying something and taking something the difference is paying a cost if you go to a store and there's shirts they're on the thing it says take one take a shirt but you leave. if there's a rack and it says buy a shirt okay you're like okay what is the price tag on that how much is that going to cost how much resources do i have is that a good exchange do i want to pay that much resource for is the value of that shirt worth it? You make that decision. If you if you agree to it, then you let go and you release what your resource is, and you take that shirt. That process is called buying. And he wants you to realize that you, if you're going to uh, have a rich life and all these things, you're going to have to buy from him. Okay. Now, you might at that point push pause button, and you're like, "Hold on, Pam. Now, isn't everything that God and Jesus have for us?" Free. I mean, isn't that the way, isn't salvation a free gift that God gives us? Why, why this word, "buy"? And I'd say you're exactly right. Salvation is free. John 3:16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever should believeth in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. Free salvation. This letter is not written to the world, it's written to the church. That's the difference. He's not talking to strangers, he's talking to sons. You already have the full inheritance. You already have everything that the father has, but now you have a destiny. Now you have a duty in the kingdom. Now you have a role to play. Now you're part of the family business. You're a game changer and it's gonna cost you something. And that's the difference. And remember Jesus, when he talked to the disciples, Anyone that would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What did he say, the rich young ruler? Go sell everything. There's a cost to this, to live and rule and reign in his kingdom, not entrance into it. Entrance into it is free. You're a child. You're adopting the kingdom. You did nothing, bankrupt. You come. He gives it all to you. But now your destiny, okay? Now you're going to take that role. It's going to cost you something. He says, buy from me. Now, this word from... Because I've studied this and taught this literally for 20 years. When I came upon this, this was a game changer in my understanding. It's a key that unlocks a mystery and I can't wait to share it with you. Okay, buy from, me. The actual word in the original text is not the word from, it's of. The earliest manuscripts all say by, of, me, not by, from, me. First, I went over my head, didn't, didn't register but as the lord and the holy spirit say circle back around circle back around circle back around let's look at this what is the difference between buying from somebody and buying of someone it's this let's say i have a car and you're going to buy a car from me then suddenly i give you my car and you give me whatever amount i no longer have the car you bought it from me i don't have a car now okay when you buy something from someone it it leaves their possession now, if you buy someone something of someone, an example would be blood. Let's say you're going to buy blood of me. You take some blood, I give you the blood, but it's of me, I still have blood. I, I still am making more blood. I'm not left in a deficit position. I'm not poorer from the transaction. I am not left without it. So when Jesus says, buy of me gold, he is saying, I will allow you to buy of me gold, but it's not going to leave me in a state of deficit. I'm not going to become lesser for it. I'm not going to become poor. It's not taken from me. Do you see the difference? Okay. And so he says, buy of me gold. Why does he say gold? Well, again, we've got to look at Romans 5.20. Paul says, everything God made, his invisible qualities and divine nature can be seen by what he made. So, Why did he say gold? Why didn't he say buy of me blood? Why didn't he say buy of me water? But he said buy of me gold. It's because of the inherent qualities that are in gold. And this is very fascinating for you guys that are doing this Bible study. The book that I wrote, you'll know how passionate I am about this correlation. Because we simply do not know half the applications of gold. Let me just give you a quick rundown of of the attributes of gold. First of all, Gold is beautiful, okay? It makes people beautiful. Here's the definition of a word. The word beauty means a quality that attracts admiring pleasure. That's what the word beauty means. Let me say it again. A quality that attracts admiring pleasure, okay, is beauty. So gold makes people beauty. From the very beginning of time, in all of our archeology span finds, and all throughout history, men and women have adored themselves with gold in order to be beautiful. okay, That's one attribute, it's beautiful. Second attribute is it's malleable. The interesting thing about gold is it can change form. You can take gold and make it into gold blocks. You've seen that at Fort Knox. You can uh, re- uh, stretch it out and, and break it down, refine, into threads. And you can do gold threading through clothes. You can pound it into sheets and put it on an office building, and it will reflect the light. You actually can take gold, and make all sorts of jewelry, but you can use it in a test tube for medicinal purposes because today it's an anti-cancer, a tumor-fighting agent is gold, literally gold. So it changes all these forms and yet it never changes its inherent quality. It always remains true to itself. Second attribute of gold. Third attribute of gold is it's a conductor of electricity. Anyone that's ever done any wiring knows that gold wiring is the supreme wiring for fine electronics. It's also the best conductor for any sort of power for receivers, for speakers, for amplifiers, all of that are gold connectors. Um, Another thing about gold is it is used as crowns throughout history uh, for kings. Why is that? It's because the king was considered... Divinely empowered with wisdom. The people were never going to follow a man, they would revolt and have a revolution unless they felt like he was divinely empowered with wisdom. How did they know he was divinely empowered with wisdom? Because there was a gold circle around his head. That's why kings' crowns were always gold, not silver, not copper, not wood, because it was to say, I've got divine wisdom in order to rule this kingdom. Um, gold is also um, highly reflective. It it reflects light, it doesn't absorb it, that's why it's on office buildings. buildings. Gold is also the only commodity that can take the heat and re-entry from the atmosphere. That's why they put gold on the lunar spacecraft so that it can come in and out of different atmospheres. And it it goes on and on and on, I'll do you one more. Gold um, is the medium of exchange for wealth. If you, that's why we have the gold standard. Alan Greenspan was the previous um, chairman of the Federal Reserve. And he said, there's no store of value apart from gold. Universally, from beginning of history until today, every culture in the world recognizes as gold is the value for the exchanging wealth. Okay? So when Jesus says, buy of me gold, he is saying that he's got the quality of highest worth and value, this gold. Now, this is another mystery. We're going to turn a key. This really gets exciting. By of me gold. Now, you can stay where you're at and listen, or you can turn with me. Two chapters over, Revelation chapter 1. This is where John actually sees a vision of the risen Jesus, the glorified Jesus. And he says in Revelation chapter 1, um, I'll start in verse 12, just to give you where I'm starting in the middle of this. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstand was someone like the Son of Man. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." So he's describing visually glorified Jesus. It's really amazing. It's the only part in scriptures where we see him already ascended, already in his heavenly glorified state, and John is describing him. This is what I want to draw out of your attention. Here's a little backstory on me personally. I think Debbie mentioned it. Yes, I was a professional model. I ran a modeling school. I ran a modeling agency. I had an image consulting business. Patients after they had cosmetic surgery, The cosmic surgeon would send the patients over, and we would do image consulting on their hair, their wardrobe, makeup, all of that. Um, And one thing that I learned from all that work experience is that your hands and your feet reveal more about who you authentically are than anything else, because you can camouflage your hair and diet, wigs. You can camouflage your face with makeup. You can camouflage your body with clothes, everything. But your hands and your feet are a dead giveaway. What's it tell you? It tells people their gender, hands and feet. It tells people um, your age, your hands and feet, your health, your hands and feet, and your usually your economic status as well, especially in the, in the ancient world when we didn't have many petties. You really got to see who someone was by their hands and their feet. So now, with that knowledge, let's look at what John says. He says, and Jesus' feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. That word bronze is the word calculobonum. It's the only time it's used in scripture. And this is the actual definition of that word. It is like gold, but more precious. So the accurate translation of this is his feet were like gold, but more precious glowing as in a furnace. So his feet are glowing, it's like gold, but more precious. So you're like, why in the world did they use the word bronze? It's not a good translation. It's because of our English language. What word would you use that's like gold, but more precious? We don't have anything that's like gold, but more precious. And so that's why the Bible writers said, well, is it brass? Is it bronze? What do we got? It's not silver. I mean, so they didn't have that word, so they put that in. But when you understand that Jesus, glorified Jesus, is what's he like? Naked. What's he like? He is like gold, but more precious glowing. That's how, that's how um, John describes him. And so what is that like? Well, we've already looked at what gold is like. He, he is beautiful. He is a conductor of the power of God. He is moldable, he can take every form. He can be a good shepherd, he can be a teacher, he can be a physician, he can be a king, he can be a suffering servant. He can take every form and never change inherent quality. What is, he, what is he like? He's reflective, he doesn't absorb the light, he reflects the light. What, what is he like? He is weighty, the weight of gold is similar to lead on an atomic scale. What do we say Jesus is the weight of God's glory? He is completely weight, he's the king of kings and he is crowned with wisdom that he is the embodiment of every one of these attributes that we associate with God. He's the healer. He's the one that fights cancer. He is the the medium exchange for all the business that God does in the kingdom. He does everything through Jesus. That's how it is. What was the last thing that Jesus said on the cross before he died? He stretched out his hands the last thing he said, which he could have said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He could have said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. But what he said, the last thing he said was paid in full. Paid in full. It's because Jesus is God's commodity. He is the pure gold, the more precious than gold, in which God transacts all his business. He was the one that paid for our sin. He is is our salvation. So now let's look at what he's saying. He says, Christians, I want you to buy, which means take at a cost, Front of me gold refined in the fire which is me I am gonna transact business with you and what you're gonna get it's not something from me what you're gonna get is me you're gonna get my nature you're gonna get my glorified state it is very much like being transfused with blood except for its golden blood it's it's more precious than gold it, it that is what he is saying to us okay so if you were to, in the ancient world, go up and watch this transaction happening, and you saw, you would see a scale, because all buying and selling was done with a scale. And so you have a scale, and there's four possible things in which could have been on this, on this side of the scale. First of all, it could have been something that you saw at a distance that looked like gold. Um, and if you got closer, you would see this, the seller have his thumb on it, because that would not be really gold, it would be pyrite, which is what we call fool's gold. It looks very much like gold, but it has no weight to it. It's fragile and brittle and will break. And so and if you got close of it, they'd call you on it. And that's why Jesus says, and God says, I hate abhorrent scales. I only like just scales. I don't want anyone selling you pyrite. The second thing you would see would be what's called prospector's gold. And that is gold-rich dirt. So it would be a pile of dirt, but in it, it would have little gold nuggets. Okay, And that, the scale would register that gold, but there would be a lot of dirt there. The third thing you would see on that scale is, is gold that's not refined. So it would be a huge block of gold, but it would have silver in it, it would have copper in it, and it would have iron in it. A lot of good stuff, but not the great stuff of pure gold. And then if you actually came up and that gold had been completely refined in the fire, then it would be a pure nugget of gold and it would have the greatest weight on it like lead and you would see its worth and value. That's what that would look like if you saw a transaction. So what is the correlation to us? Jesus says, as you're trying to find out your good works and your unique blueprint, why you're on planet Earth, you're going to encounter those four scenarios. You're going to find yogis. You're going to find other false teachers. You're going to find false gods, false religions that are pyrite. That's what I call full skull. As you get closer to it, you're going to see that it looks like my grace, but it doesn't have the weight and value. It is not a conductor of my power. It's very brittle, and it won't hold up. You're going to encounter that. The second thing you're going to encounter when you're trying to find out what your unique calling is, so why you're on planet Earth, is you're going to find prospecting gold. That's going to be people that, yes, they have some truth. They have my grace that they're operating in, but there's a whole lot of dirt in there. There has a whole lot of self-interest, a whole lot of self-advancement. It's what the scriptures call duplicity. There's two different agendas going on. Okay, that's prospecting gold. The third one you're going to find is you're going to find a, a, when you're looking for why you're here and the good works you're going to do, there's a lot of good things you can do, and there's a few great things you can do. So you're going to have to discern between the silver and the copper and the iron to know what is the pure gold that you're supposed to do, and you're going to have to choose not for the good to save only for the best. And so, um, what, um, let's see, The this is where I wanted to go with this. Oh, back here, to three. So he says, I want you to have I, um, salve on your eyes so that you can see, white clothes to cover your shameful nakedness, and for you to be uh, rich. And so the only way you're going to get that um, result is if you buy from me gold, refine the fire. You're going to have to let go of the silver. You're going to have to let discern the dirt from the um, gold that people teach you are going to have to let go of the fool's gold if you're ever going to find the specific good works that are pre-arranged made ready for you so you're like okay i got it pam i only want the pure gold i'm going to do that now the question comes what is the counterbalance what do you bring for to make this transaction because remember you're paying a cost now you know what you're going to get from him what are you going to pay and you're like, what in the world do I have that is remotely valuable enough to make this transaction? And someone might say, my life. You know, that's what I'm going to give him my life. No, you already did that. You already gave him for salvation. You know, that's, that transaction's already happened. You're already bought with a price. So you're like, well, what can I put on the scale if I've already given him my life? Well, this is what he wants, and it's incredibly um, precious and valuable to him. It's your dreams. It's your heart's desire. It's that secret thing that you probably don't even tell anybody. You maybe have never told anybody, but you've wanted to do it since you were a kid. And you thought, oh, now it's too late, too old, too poor, too fat, too, too, I don't have the opportunity. It's that secret dream, those desires of your heart that goes on the scale. That is what he wants you to give. Is it that you always wanted to be a doctor? Is it that you want to be in love? Is it you want to be a parent? You, now remember, His grace is moldable. It's malleable. It doesn't matter what you've ever done or haven't done. His grace now can come into your life at 40, 50, 60, 80, 10, 15. It doesn't matter your age because it's not about you. It's about Him. So what is in your heart of hearts, that is what you put on your scale. And that dream and that desire will look very much like the gold side of it. So that dream may be, Uh, Let's say you have a dream, I've really always wanted to be a heroin dealer, okay, now wait a minute. That falls into the pyrite category, okay, and the reason being is the definition of good. God said everything he made was good, it's to function according to design. So if heroin dealing was in any remotely way good or functioning according to design, you might could argue that it's pyrite, but it's not pyrite. But as far as I know, it's far right. There's no, there's no beneficial. that. So that, all of a sudden, boom, that carries no weight. That's brittle. That is not your dream. Now, let's say your dream is I really want to be a singer. I want to be an actor. I want to start my own business. But I also really want to be famous. I want to have tons of money, lots of wives, lots of men, lots of whatever, all the stuff you want. Well, there you go. You got the little gold nugget of the dream of what you want in a whole lot of dirt. Whole lot of dirt. And he's like, okay, we're going to sip that thing through. Now, let's say your dream, your dream is that oh, there's so many things. I want to be a doctor. I want to be an actress. I want to be a mother. Um, I want to start an orphanage. I mean, those are all things. How do you discern what is silver, what is copper, and what is gold? Okay. And so your dreams may involve that. And then, of course, your dream is the blueprint that he created with you before you got here, before he knew you in your mother's womb. He knew you before you ever got here that dream that blueprint those good works prearranged for you are the pure gold that's the dream he's going for and so that's that's what he's aiming for so how does this work it's a transfusion process just like he doesn't lose the gold of his nature by giving it to you you don't lose your dream by giving it to him okay but it is he wants you to be possessed with his nature and he wants to possess your dream That's what he wants. He wants this complete circle. I want to live in your dream. I want to overcome every obstacle. I want to achieve your greatest heart's desire. What did he say? Delight in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. That's what he said. That's why I want to live in and through you and bring that dream to life in the pure gold way that I knew it was and I intended to be because I am the master architect of this entire thing, and I know how you are to function according to his good design. So, now, that's what he wants. I want to bring this incredibly practical, okay? I want to make this so you know exactly what to do tomorrow, next morning. So, in the next verse he says is, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So, be earnest and repent of, of whatever you're doing. Any independent thinking, I want you to be earnest and repent. I love you. I love you as a son. I'm not talking a stranger. So, now you know. So, if, you, if you're wretched, poor, pitiful, and blind, get over it, repent. Now, let's get on board. Now, the next thing is where this comes through in the most sweetest, powerful way, and really my heart of wanting to share with you tonight. It's this, and it's a story I want to tell you, a true story. I was a missionary in the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union in the late 1980s before the wall came down in 89. And during my time as a missionary, I was in the southern part of the Soviet Union in Kazakhstan. Across the border, it was Afghanistan. And we were on a team of seven. Uh, There were four boys and three girls, four men, three ladies, however you want to say it. And um, we came across some Bedouin herdsmen that kept, uh, their lifestyle was the exact same culture and custom that had been going on for 2,000 years, actually 6,000 years. They hadn't changed at all. They They had camels, and they grazed their sheep, that's how they made their living, and there was a chieftain that was the head of it, and his sons were overseeing it, and they had other workers, and they just um, grazed their sheep out. Bedouin um, Arab um, farmers, or not farmers, herdsmen is what they were. And their culture was this, or their custom was this. In the morning, they would get up and have a very light meal at sunrise. And then they would go out and graze their sheep all day. And then at the end, when, sunrise, when sunset was coming, then they would come in and have their heavier meal. That's how they, it was their daily routine. And the chieftain, the head of it, had lived or had a tent, and it was really called an urt. But it looked like a teepee. You know, if it's an urt, it's kind of a big teepee. And that was where he, he ate and he slept. And all the other sons and all the other workers were outside and watching the camels and the sheep. And so nobody stole them and no wild animals got them. Okay, so we arrive to these Bedouin herdsmen at sunset. And our translator came and said, the chieftain would like for you to share the evening meal with him. You know, would you be willing? We're like, absolutely. He said, okay, well, the earth's pretty small, and it kind of crowded. We'll have the guys on the team go out with the men, and then we'll have the ladies can go in and have the dinner with him inside his earth. Okay, so the three of us go in his his little tent area, and quickly, we're standing there, and my two uh, co-missionaries are like, it's hot in here, it's stuffy, it's camel hair, I can't breathe. Pam, I'm going to go outside. Do you mind staying staying in here alone and having this dinner? I'm like, I'm good with that. I'm fine. So it's, it's sunset. And so now I want to paint you the picture of, of exactly what happened. So I'm in this this earth, this teepee. I'm standing there. It's kind of open, the teepee. You can see the sun kind of setting. He comes in. He's got the white turban, the white robe, just like you would see you know, an, an Arab herds, herdsman look like. He's the chieftain, and he walks in. And he gets pillows and blankets and all sorts of tapestry that's inside this earth. And he lays it down at pillows. And then he lays another one kind of by him. And he, and he does this. Go down. You know, lay down. And so I, I kind of sit down. And then he's like, you know, push down. And so I, now I'm lounging. Because the Bedouin herdsmen lounge while they, they've been working all day. This is the end of their day. And they're tired. So now he lays down this pillow. He has my – and we're laying both like this, have our head, you know, propped up on our – elbow and I, I'm just laying there and suddenly I realize how incredibly quiet it is. You cannot imagine miles, perhaps hundreds of miles, from any cars, from any traffic, no airplanes, and no buses, no nothing, no cars, no electricity. So there's no air conditioning, there's no humming of a refrigerator. There's no trees. It's an arid environment. There's no leaves, anything going. It was unbelievably, almost like you're in some sort of sensory enclosure. It was so quiet, so quiet I could hear my own breath, and then I think I could hear my own heart. I could certainly hear his breath, and hear him. am. It was right here, there. It's just so quiet. Now, the sun is setting as I'm laying there, just being aware of the silence. And so he goes and gets a table. And the table looked like a checkerboard. It was maybe 12, 20 inches square. And it was probably three or four inches high, this little table. And he puts it right in, right here in front of me. I'm laying on the ground, you know, lounging. And it's lounging right by him, so it's this little table. And he gets one candle and lights it and puts it in that candle. And so now it's, the, it's getting darker and darker. But, and that's candlelight, very dim candlelight, very comfortable, very quiet in this candlelight. Then he goes over, and he has a flask, and he pours the flask, and he washes his hands like this in the water from the flask. And then he has a little cup, put some herbs in it, water. And he has a loaf of bread that's wrapped up in a towel. He has another uh, little uh, kind of beef jerky wrapped up in a towel. And he brings it over, and he sits it on this table in front of me. And so I'm lounging there, and he just for a minute looks at me. These weathered, big brown eyes, very quiet. We're just sitting here breathing this and then suddenly he reaches over from the loaf of bread, tears off a small piece, puts it in the broth and then takes it up to my lips just like this. And I'm sitting there and I'm like okay so I take my hand to get the bread that he's handing to me and he pulls it away and then he goes like this and he goes I'm the only one with clean hands. That's what he's doing. He's the only one that washed his hands. So then he takes that bread and he puts it back up to my lips and he waits for me to part my lips puts it on my tongue, and watches me take it and chew it and swallow it very slowly. Never takes his eyes off me, breathing in the silence, and I swallow it. Then he takes another piece, same thing, very slowly, eyeball, in the candlelight, doesn't move, watches me, watches me, chew, 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 slowly swallow. This went on, four or five pieces of bread. Then finally, he reached to the meat, tore off a little piece of beef jerky, went right up to my lips. Watched it. He watched me take it in. He watched me chew it, chew it, chew it, slowly swallow it. was That was the meal. He fed me the whole meal, very slow, very intimate, in a candlelight dim, uh, isolated. No one was around. Um, it was the most intimate, powerful meal I ever had. That was in late 80s. It would be 10 years later that God would give me this passage to teach. And I got to the point with the next verse I want to read. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, I read that, and suddenly I remembered that meal. And I did the research on the, on the people of Laodicea at that time, and they had the exact same cult, custom as those Bedouin herdsmen. That was the meal that Jesus was describing. That's what it looks like when he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's an intimate meal because Jesus is the only one with clean hands. It's, our quiet time is to look like this. We are not to have any sensory distraction. We are not to be doing it in a rush. We are to be so still we can hear and be aware of our own breath. We should hear and feel the Lord's presence there. We don't have to see him. It's a dim lit. It's, it's no hurry. He takes the word of God, and he takes it, and he feeds us to it word by word, and that word becomes the rama, of God, the bread of life. And he watches us chew that, to that, meditate on that, think of that, and swallow that truth in. And then when we're ready, he gives us another word, and another word. And then when we're ready, he gives us the meat. And he never leaves us. His eyes are on us. And he's watching us take this in and digest. That's what it looks like to be with Jesus in his quiet time. This, this, this passage is also a mirror passage to uh, an exodus when he's talking about the nation of Israel. And they're in the wilderness. And remember, he's, God says he walks through the tents of all the people and he hears them grumbling and complaining. He hears them say, I hate this manna, I'm getting sick of it. I wish we had some water. When are we ever going to have some meat? He can hear them, and he says, I am here. I stand at the door and knock of these tents. If you invite me in, I will come in and eat with you. I will give you the water, the manna. But what did the people in the nation of Israel, I mean, in Exodus say? They said, we don't want to hear from God. We want Moses, you, to supply us. They made that choice. And so now Jesus is saying, look, I've come. You once rejected me. Church, don't reject me. I am here. I can give you that bread of life. I want to be intimate with you. That's the way, the how of the what of buying from God gold refined in the fire. This is what he wants to do. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen in that word by word feeding process that he does. Do Do you see that connection? And so uh, the next verse is to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. One minute before I close. Um, He who overcomes. Five years ago, I taught, it was the last time I taught this lesson to a group of people. It's five years ago. Five years ago, my husband had a freak accident. Nothing's freak. No explanation, and it left him paralyzed in the hospital. First, he was paralyzed from the neck down. Then he was paralyzed for the waist down. Now, he, no, 2013. So he is in uh, Harris downtown, and I went to a rehab hospital. He was completely medicated. He had no one to take care of him or speak for him except for me. His parents are dead. We had a daughter that had just started her freshman year in college away. And I had two sons that were too young to drive. And so I went to the hospital every day so I could speak on his behalf, be with him, help with the doctors, trying to figure out if he'd ever walk again because he's paralyzed from the waist down. I happened to have a speaking engagement that had booked. At that time, I was a national speaker with outreach. And so there was a women's conference in Washington, D.C. by the Church of God. They had thousands of people. They'd been planning it for a year. People were coming all over the world, and I was the keynote speaker. And now I I thought I can't leave my husband's side. I mean, I can't. what happens to me? What happens to my kids? are at home. I, I mean, I, I'm going to have to cancel. And the Lord said, what are the good works that I have prearranged, made ready for you? Is this assignment that you have part of those good works? So I said, I don't know. I, I feel like I've got an obstacle, a barrier in front of me, a hurdle. How can I overcome this? I can't leave him. Does it make sense? So I go to the Lord in the quiet time, just like I explained, in that intimate setting. As I'm sitting there, the Lord takes the word, and he feeds me. He says, puts that nugget in, trust in me with all your heart. Trust in me with all your heart. I take that word in. I listen to the Lord. I chew on it. I swallow it. Yes, I will trust you with all my heart. Do you trust me? Do you swallow that in? Yes, I trust you. Will you lean not on your own understanding? Will you, yeah, put that word in. Will you acknowledge me in all your ways? Not just when your life's good, but when your husband can't walk and you feel like you're abandoning your children. Can you acknowledge me in all your ways? Then I will direct your path. So I made a decision that I would go to that conference. So I left and went to Washington DC, delivered this talk like this to those people. And, um, and the thing that was important to me is that was five years ago, last time I did this. Last time I was on a stage teaching this, I wore this jacket, I wore this shirt, I wore these pants, and I wore these shoes five years ago. So I wanted to wear it tonight. It just was so full circle. God says, time can stand still. I know exactly what I want to do. I'm refining your heart to stand in this exact same place. The good news was the next morning, I got up to get my plane, and I got a video from my husband from the hospital. Now, you got to know, he had just been wiggling his toes, just been wiggling his toes, had a walker. I get a video, and he's up there. He's got a walker because it just kind of shows him from chest down, and then I see the walker move. Then I see him walk, walk, walk. been six months. he have been in a hospital. So what the Lord said to me is, I will take care of the desires of your heart when you take care of the desires of my heart the way this works and so when i tell you that we can overcome it is difficult it is simple but that doesn't mean it's easy and so that refining process is painful but he who overcomes he gives the right to sit with him on his throne so it's a great uh desire of mine a dream of mine to be here and share this message with you tonight and you and you and all made it because you came on on friday night So I want to thank you, and I want to leave with the last verse of this letter. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you.